Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. And, you know, if I had to make a list of people that I wanted to talk to today, uh, top of my list would be uh, Benjamin Wittes uh, from Lawfare. And Benjamin uh, joined me on an extraordinary day in which the Supreme Court has managed really to flood the zone. So um, how are you doing, Benjamin? You know, I'm I'm fine. Um, <laughs> I, I have to say that, you know, I want, just want to remind you that every time now you invite me on the podcast, mm-hmm. the Supreme Court responds by doing something major on abortion. Uh, the last time I was on, the, the draft leaked the evening before, mm-hmm. and today you had me scheduled to come on, and <laughs> the Supreme Court hands down Dobbs. So I'm beginning to think there's a cause and effect yeah, relationship yeah, here. There are no coincidences, it, right? There are, yeah. You ever yep. seen me and Justice Thomas in a video together? No. So uh, I, obviously this morning I woke up, I thought, hey, we're going to uh, devote this podcast overwhelmingly to... Uh, the Thursday, January 6th committee hearing about the uh, the attempts by the former president to corrupt the Department of Justice, which we will get to. Also, major decision on guns, which we will get to. But obviously, we have to start with the Dobbs decision that uh, that, that came down. We should clarify that uh, neither of us have read every single word of that opinion, but it appears to track very closely with the leaked draft by Justice Alito, very sweeping in much of its language, uh, overturning not just Roe, but Casey as well. So let's let's talk about this. And I, I mentioned to you before the podcast, I was listening to much of the immediate commentary. And to give you a sense, uh, just sort of imagine, you know, pouring kerosene over your head and, and, and lighting it, uh, people are reacting very angrily, very emotionally. People seem surprised, even though this, had, I think, had been telegraphed uh, relatively clearly. So gets, give me your reaction. We are having this discussion Friday morning. Well, it's Friday afternoon for you. I'm in a different time zone. And a constitutional right, which had been uh, in, enshrined for the last 50 years, has been completely overturned. So just give me your, your initial take on this, this decision. Yeah, so I, I mean, I, let's start with the fact that nobody can reasonably be surprised by this, given that a draft of it, a rather fully developed draft of it, was leaked. And at the time that it was leaked, there was reporting by Politico that the vote count, mm-hmm. you know, had not changed, right? And so the lineup here, which is, you know, five justices uh, for this opinion. The chief justice in a kind of intermediate would uphold the statute at issue, but wouldn't go so far as fully to overturn Roe and Casey. And uh, three dissenters is exactly what you would have expected from the Politico article a couple of months ago. Now, that said, it's completely shocking and you know it's not if not the slightest bit surprising and look it's shocking i think for two reasons one is that i think at some level most americans and when i say most i mean the vast majority of americans actually believed notwithstanding the rhetoric of the abortion debate that the fundamental parameters of the of the matter were pretty well settled. That, you know, for most pro-life people, they actually didn't believe that they had a chance of actually overturning mm-hmm. Roe v. Wade. And for most pro-choice people, however energized they would be and feel about abortion rights, they didn't actually perceive any kind of real immediate threat to the ability of the average person on a given day to go get an abortion if she felt she needed one. And I think most people, you know, it's this, this area where, uh, where the, 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 the fundamentals of the yeah. debate were pretty stable over a very long period of time. And all of a sudden, the Supreme Court comes along and just sweeps everything off the table. Uh, that's a very jarring moment. So that's point number one. Well, and I don't, can I just comment on that? Because And, and that's what makes um, predictions of the political fallout so difficult, because it is a completely new political world. 
because of exactly, exa- exactly how you d- you described it. And so all of the polling that we we've seen up until now has been based on that assumption. So uh, you know, I think it's been a longstanding observation that uh, you know sometimes pro life voters are much more mobilized uh, and motivated uh, to vote on this issue than pro choice voters. Well, in part because pro choice voters perhaps never really thought that the the right was at risk. And now everything is is upturned. I'm sorry. So go your second point. Right. So the second point is that, uh, and I think this is a more of a jurisprudential point than a, uh, than a political point, which is, you know, there has been, it, it is very rare for the Supreme Court to take away a right that has existed for 50 years, uh, that most Americans actually know by name. You know, if you, if you ask Americans, name a Supreme Court decision, you know, they might mention Brown v. Board of Ed, they might mention, uh, you know, Miranda v. Arizona, and they might mention Roe v. Wade, right? This is a, this is a, uh, one of the big three in yeah. public consciousness. And in, it's, it's really two whole generations of women have grown up with an understanding of this as part of their fundamental rights. And, you know, the, for the Supreme Court, you know, in, in law, we call this a reliance interest. When the Supreme Court or some other court articulates a, a principle and you rely and you come to rely on that principle that is something that you know it, the the court tends to to tinker with with a certain degree of hesitation because a reliance interest legitimately come by is is something that the law tends to respect not this time right and and so i i do think you know people's the the court this morning asked us fundamentally to reorient our understanding of fundamental rights. And that's a very jarring thing to happen. And then the third thing, which I just think is important from the point of view of the, the institution of the court, is that, you know, the whole idea that the court is not a political institution is just uh, like was was always silly, yeah. but is now very revealed, really re- actively revealed as silly, right? So a a political movement, in this case the conservative judicial movement, um, went on a fifty year campaign to elect presidents and senators who would deliver the kind of judges who would do this, yeah. and today they got it. And what that shows is that, you know, the political system, uh, in fact, very directly manages over the long term the direction of the courts. And, you know, that's a that's a sobering fact for those of us who, you know, would like to believe in some degree of apolitical justice or law as a discipline at least somewhat independent of politics. So you didn't mention the term stare decisis. Uh, that seems to have been just blown up. You know, I mentioned it in the context of reliance. Yeah. And right. Interest, right, right. So, yeah. um, look, I, I would have thought, and, and there, there's a lot to criticize in Roe v. Wade, and there's a lot of reasons to argue that it was wrong as an original matter. Um, but if the concept of stare decisis means anything. Surely it means that the Supreme Court doesn't give a fundamental right in 1973 and take it away in 2022 merely because the composition of the court has changed. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you you were talking about, you know, one of the big three, you know, it's hard to overstate the significance of this decision because for the last 50 years, Roe versus Wade has been the the, you know, this the, the Roe versus Wade has been hanging over all of the politics of the court, all of the discussions. It has been part of campaigns for five decades. And now suddenly, you know, it is gone. 
And you mentioned that it's extremely unusual for the court to you know, remove a right that had been enjoyed for 50 years. Help me on this. What? When was the last time? I mean, there have been major decisions that were overruled, but but in a different direction. What would be the historical analogy to this? Well, so I, I, I think the best historical analogy, and it's one that liberals will really resist, is the end of the Lochner era, right? Mm-hmm. So the in the Lochner era, the Supreme Court, uh, you know, prevented all kinds of progressive legislation on the grounds that they inter- it interfered with, you know, uh, uh, the ability of people to contract their labor on the terms that they wanted, right? And so these are understood to be pro-business decisions, but there was a yeah. they were framed in terms of individual liberties, right? And so you you could say that the Supreme Court had a much more expansive vision of the freedom of contract and then kind of took that right away and made it much more subject to public policy considerations. Mm-hmm. Um, but liberals don't tend to see it that way because they they tend to see it as that era rather than protecting individual rights, which was the way the Supreme Court at the time saw it, was actually just a restraint on uh, the mm-hmm. the power of Congress or state legislatures to restrain rapacious big business. I don't think there is a good example no, of of. A, an individual right. Um, not at this level. Certainly not at this level of intimacy, right? Well, the query whether there is any right ever articulated at this level of intimacy. The other examples that you could name uh, where rights have been really taken away um, uh, are, you know, all have to do with you know, the rights to own slaves. Right. Right. And, and we don't tend to, we tend to think of that. Well, we, we do think of that in retrospect from the point of view of the rights of the slave, not the rights of the slave owner. Okay. So I, I have a series of of questions that we may not know answers to. In fact, there may not be answers to, which is this, this very confusing world that we are now into in terms of what is the standard for review? What are states going to be able to do? Um, What will the, federal position be on all of this. So I guess the first question would be, do you have any sense of whether or not, of whether this decision places any limits on the ability of states to restrict abortion in any way that it wants? Can states ban abortion from the moment of conception? Is there any limiting principle in the decision issue today? So I have not uh, gone through the Alito opinion carefully enough to answer that question authoritatively. I will say there does not appear to me to be a, a limiting principle that would say, well, a state can't do X. Um, there's a, you know, it, it's effectively applying rational basis scrutiny to this, which means that a state can really do what it wants. And okay. a bunch of states have what are called trigger laws, which, right. you know, basically mean you know, to, including yours, I think. Um, in Wisconsin, right. You know, abortion is now illegal, or at least when the mandate issues, uh, in this case, it will be. And, you know, I think those, at a minimum, what's going to happen is the the ground, the, the default changes dramatically, right? And you may have litigation either under state law or under federal law about how aggressive states can be, but the the basic rule is states have a lot of discretion right now. Well, and also in the state of Wisconsin, where we do have a law that uh, theoretically now goes into effect, um, you know, again, political fallout being that the it now comes down to the race for governor in Wisconsin, and which will be decided probably by about 20,000 votes, because if a Republican is elected here in Wisconsin, um, they will pass a new ban or they will enforce the existing bans. But this also might be a county by county issue where district attorneys will decide whether or not they're going to use prosecutorial discretion to enforce the laws. So there, there may be a tension between state prosecutors. I mean, you know, state, uh, you know, state attorney generals and, and local prosecutors. We just don't know at this point. Yeah, there's going to be a period of very significant chaos, um, yes, significant and chaos. and it's going to be chaos within states as 
uh, because there are certainly states where, you know, local prosecutors are going to be much more aggressive in some counties than in other counties. Um, But there's also going to be chaos between states as, you know, states try to regulate what their citizens can do in other jurisdictions. And also, I think we are going to, as you alluded to earlier, we are going to see a test of whether there is a significant single issue pro-choice constituency uh, uh, of the type that has existed on the pro-life side for the last 50 years and in what states that we will see that constituency actually prevail. Well, I'm going to get to this interstate issue because I think this is going to be fascinating. But 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 one one last question on limiting principle. So in theory, could a state pass a law that says that we consider abortion to be murder and therefore anyone involved in this should be criminally liable, including the mother? Is there anything, any reason to think that the court would say, well, no, you can pass laws that criminalize abortion for doctors and other providers, but you cannot criminalize it for women because I mean, I there's don't certain th- iron logic. There. I don't I just, think so. If okay. there's no, if there is no right to an abortion, it can be criminalized. So in this question of interstate travel for it, I think there's, there's two really interesting issues. Number one, whether or not, uh, you know, states can in some ways restrict the ability of their residents to travel to other states or to you know, obtain abortions in other states. And then, of course, there's the whole question of regulating abortion pills, the, the transit of, of abortion pills or uh, the mailing of, of abortion pills. That's a different area of law, right? You can say, I mean, states can decide their own state law, but what is the limiting principle of states affecting what happens in neighboring states? So the general rule is that there is a federal right to travel. Yeah. And now the federal government can create restrictions on your ability to cross state lines for various criminal purposes or can regulate interstate travel and commerce. But the states generally uh, cannot. And the extraterritorial reach of states within for legal conduct within other states, I would think is is a matter that is going to be tested over the next uh, a few years because of this. Uh, but I would not be at all surprised to see the that this conservative majority would not hold together mm-hmm. for, you know, the idea that Texas can prevent a Texas resident from getting an abortion in in Colorado. Uh, you know, that said, I wouldn't have predicted this either. So, well, there's also I mean, there's some language out there um, that, that I've seen that would would prohibit any sort of uh, passing of information um, about abortions or how to obtain abortions, which would also, uh, I, I, you know, is that an attempt to restrict uh, information on the internet, which again, we don't know. This is chaos. Well, now, Attorney General Merrick Garland said this morning that overturning Roe versus Wade's eliminated a fundamental right, but adds that the FDA has approved the use of the abortion pill, basically. Uh, States may not ban this medication based on disagreement with the FDA's expert judgment about its safety and efficacy. So this seems like it's going to be a legal battlefield. Can states limit people going online and ordering uh, an abortion pill? Say, if if you live in Texas, uh, ordering abortion pills from to be sent to you from Illinois. How does that work? Well, so this is a really interesting question, and I have not studied it and don't know the answer to it, but here are some parameters of the answer to it, right? F- the, the food, drug, and cosmetic law is, uh, is a federal authority, right? That's regulated nationally by the FDA. But the local practice of medicine is a state matter. So you can already see where there's some potential for conflict there. To the extent that states have regulations that are um, in conflict with FDA regulations, there would be a a question of whether those state laws, state rules are preempted by federal law. Um, So you have a, a question, I think, of 
whether the state probably has limited authority to restrict the, the drug, but it probably has quite a bit of authority, you know, to regulate a doctor's ability to engage with the process. I see. Okay. But that's just kind of my gut instinct. I think it's a, it's, again, it's going to be one of these areas where there's going to be a lot of litigation. And I wouldn't be at all surprised to see major litigation between, for example, Texas and the Food and Drug Administration. I think that's inevitable. Okay, so the one thing that surprised me today was that Clarence Thomas uh, felt the need to file a separate concurrence in which he went in a direction that that Alito's opinion, you know, you know, tried to avoid. I mean, in in his opinion, Alito runs through all of the other cases that are based on a right to privacy and in essentially saying this case is just about abortion. So this is not going to affect same sex marriage. It's not going to affect uh, contraception. It's not going to even though we're saying that there is no right of privacy, this doesn't affect all those other cases. And Thomas and there's a certain logic here, is saying that with Roe overturned, the Supreme Court should now reconsider a host of other major cases predicated on this right to privacy, including recent rulings that protected the right to contraception, that's not recent, and same-sex marriage. And he wrote, in future cases, we should consider all of this court's substantive due process precedents, including Griswold, which is uh, contraception, Lawrence, which involved the a criminalization of sodomy and the case um, that uh, that legalized gay marriage. He said this. Uh, so all of this is we have a duty to correct the error established in those precedents, which is like, wow, uh, he so went I, there. He's putting up a red flag saying, you know, this is, you know, we've gone here on abortion, but all of these other precedents and these are major cases you know, are are now you know in on in his uh, in his sights. Yeah. So uh, first of all, I want to defend Clarence Thomas on mm-hmm. this. He's just being consistent, right? Thomas, first of all, does not believe in stare decisis in constitutional matters, and he's been very clear about that. He believes, and this is actually a a point of historic dispute between him and Scalia. Scalia you know, used to describe himself as a faint-hearted originalist in the sense that he wouldn't overturn every precedent that wasn't consistent with originalism. And Thomas is a non-faint-hearted originalist. He believes if something's, the court got something wrong historically, then you should correct it. Um, He also has always argued that this line of cases is wrong hook, line, and sinker. And so he is just here marking the territory that he has always defended on both of those points. I don't think his position is, is especially surprising at all. It's extremely radical, of course, very. but Thomas is very radical. I think the much more surprising thing from my point of view is how far the chief and Justice Kavanaugh were willing to go. And I'm surprised a little bit by both of those things, although both of which are in any event more surprising than Thomas's position, which is just consistent with everything he said. Well, I I don't want people to misunderstand it. And I agree with you completely on all of this by saying, though, that, you know, that that Thomas is being consistent. We're not, you know, defending his the position he's taking, except to point out that there is a certain you know logic here, which is that once you that if you overturn Roe and Casey by saying that there is no right to privacy in the Constitution, that's something that you know uh, that you cannot discover a right in the Constitution that is not explicitly there, that is not does not is not supported by history and tradition, etc. Well, that is the same language that you would use to overturn Griswold, Lawrence, and the gay marriage decision, o- Obergefell. And so, I mean, in in a sense that this is why my views on this are very, very complex, because I am pro-life, but I've also been strongly in favor of the belief in the right of privacy. And once these have gotten, you know, entangled with one another, then suddenly this whole string of cases feels like there's a certain vulnerability if the radicalization that we're seeing continues, you know, if, if that... If that line of, 
okay, so we've now done Roe versus Wade. Look around. What are we going to do next? Well, you know, there's no right to uh, gay marriage. There's no right to uh, to contraception in the Constitution. There's no right to, uh, you know, in, engage in in certain, you know, private sexual acts in the Constitution. You can see the evolution of that thinking. Yeah. And look, there's a lot of unenumerated rights in the Constitution. The right to marry, for example, which is considered fundamental, doesn't appear in the Constitution, right? There are a bunch of possible ways to distinguish between things, but none of them is obvious, right? right? And so, like, this does open a big can of worms for those cases and, I think, for others. At At the very least, it forces you to justify rights that we have thought are of as requiring no justification because they're so embedded in the fabric of our society. Okay, we, we need to get to the uh, January 6th the committee, but one last thing we were talking about, the, the role of the court. I think we started here was the, you know, the obviously the politicization of the court. You've seen, I'm sure, this new Gallup survey showing that confidence in the Supreme Court is at pretty much all-time lows. Only 25% of Americans say they have a lot of confidence in the court. So for a lot of the institutionalists, well, a lot of what's been playing out has kind of been a worst case scenario, hasn't it, in terms of undermining the sort of sacred independence of the judiciary. But 25 percent uh, confidence uh, rating for the court, um, uh, that's, it, that's, that's, not, that's something. Yeah, historically, the court is one of the institutions, I think sort of second only to the military, that has the highest institutional confidence of the American people. And, you know, honestly, the reason for that may have something to do with the grandeur and uh, stuffiness of the court. But I suspect it also has a lot to do with the fact that the court is a pretty, you know, it fashions itself as an anti-majoritarian institution, but it's most of its work is solidly within the areas that most Americans kind of believe in, right? And, you know, it, it, every year it hands down a couple of controversial opinions, but it also solemnizes a lot of consensus views. And, you know, it doesn't, uh, the, there's an old saying, the Supreme Court follows the election returns, right? Which is, And here the court is really getting out ahead of public opinion in major, major ways. And and when you do that, institutional confidence will go down. That's what happened in the later years of the Warren court. Um, And Richard Nixon ran against the court, and it was a very powerful element of his 1968 campaign. Okay, so we we have to now shift to what happened yesterday, Donald Trump's uh, insane criminal conspiracy involving the Department of Justice. Uh, Oh, yeah, that. Yeah, (laughs) the hearing yesterday, which featured, and I I think it it can't be overemphasized, featured Trump's folks. I mean, everybody that testified was a Trump appointee. These are all Republicans. These are people who stuck with Trump throughout the entire shit show of his presidency up until he tried to overturn the uh, the election. And uh, um, what we heard yesterday about uh, the president of the United States attempts to, to oust the, the leadership of the Department of Justice, replace it with, I'm sorry, I'll just, you know, since we're short of time, the, just toady, um, you know, J- Jeffrey Clark, and how close he came to pulling this off would have been a Saturday night, Sunday night massacre, and then would have used the Department of Justice as a cudgel uh, to sow chaos in the election. So let's talk about that and all the things we learned, because that was, you know, we could have devoted an entire double podcast to that. I think there were probably a couple of dozen uh, storylines that we could have pursued there. But let's uh, take a moment to to sort of summarize um, what really another remarkable day of hearings from the January 6th uh, committing. We put together a little bit of a, a montage uh, of some of the highlights just to get us in the mood to talk about this. Let's play that. They will identify certain of the members of Congress who contacted the White House after January 6th to seek presidential pardons for their conduct. You also noted that Mr. Rosen said to Mr. Trump, quote, DOJ can't and won't snap its fingers. 
and change the outcome of the election. How, how did the president respond to that, sir? He responded very quickly and said, essentially, uh, that's not what I'm asking you to do. What I'm just asking you to do is just say it was corrupt and leave the rest to me and the Republican congressman. On the same day he met with these Republican members of Congress, President Trump called into a conservative political convention and he used the opportunity to pressure the Department of Justice to investigate his bogus claims. The problem is we need a party that's going to fight and we have some great congressmen and women that are doing it. And we need backing from like the Justice Department and other people have to finally step up. Representative Perry returned to the White House. This time he brought a Justice Department official named Jeffrey Clark. At the center of Mr. Clark's plan to undo President Trump's election loss uh, was a letter. Mr. Donahue, on December 28th, Mr. Clark emailed you and Mr. Rosen a draft letter that he wanted you to sign uh, and send to Georgia state officials. You testified that this could have, quote, grave constitutional consequences. Mr. Rosen, the president asked you to seize voting machines from state governments. What was your response to that request? Select committee confirmed that a call was actually placed by Secretary Miller to the attache in Italy to investigate the claim that Italian satellites were switching votes from Trump to Biden. As he told Mr. Donahue in that December 27th call, quote, you guys may not be following the internet the way I do. Uh, and then the other thing that I said was that all anyone is gonna think is that you went through two attorneys general in two weeks until you found the environmental guy to sign this thing. And so the story is not going to be that the Department of Justice has found massive corruption that would have changed the results of the election. It's going to be the disaster uh, of Jeff Clark. Uh, and I think at that point, Pat Cipollone said, yeah, this is a murder-suicide pact, this letter. And, and yeah. I, would, I would note, too, Congressman, that uh, it was in this part of the conversation where Steve uh, pointed out that Jeff Clark would be left leading a graveyard. Um, and that, that comment clearly had an impact on the president. The pardon that he was discussing, requesting, was as broad as you could describe. From the beginning, of, I remember he's from the beginning of time up until today, for any and all things. He mentioned Nixon, and I said Nixon's pardon was never nearly that broad. Wow. Okay, so. <laughs> yeah, it was quite a where, day. Where do you want to start with all of this? You know, my takeaway was, okay, there's so much of it's clown, you know, clownish and insane, like the Italian satellite thing. But, you know, and the lies were absurd, but they came so close. They came so close to it. But in the end, the Department of Justice held the line. So what was your main takeaway? Well, so I, I I actually don't think this situation was clownish. Um, there are clownish elements, but at the end of the day, this was a pretty serious effort by a Senate-confirmed senior Justice Department official, by whom I mean Jeff Clark, to send a frankly fraudulent letter to state officials, to the state of Georgia, lyingly telling them that the Justice Department had serious concerns about the integrity of the election, which was false. The Justice Department had investigated concerns and did not have these concerns. Uh, and that resulted in an Oval Office meeting at which the president contemplated the removal of the Justice Department leadership and the replacement of it with this official so that he could send this fraudulent letter. Now, the day that the Justice Department sends a formal communication that contains an outright lie about a matter of that gravity is, as Mr. Donahue testified yesterday uh, that he had written at the time in, in this email, that's a very grave step for the U.S. Justice Department to contemplate. And the fact that it came as close to happening as it did and required the entire Justice Department leadership to threaten to mm -hmm. resign actually 
this is not just clown show material, right. although I agree with you, it has comic elements of clown show stuff. This was a very serious contemplation of a decapitation strike against the Justice Department in order to get the Justice Department to commit fraud. I agree. And, and that's a, a remarkable thing. And, you know, the fact that the outlines of this story have been known for some time it's never gotten the attention that it deserves. And partly because the characters involved have, you know, they've spoken, but only in congressional depositions. They're Justice Department lawyers. They're not, you know, Alex Vindman types, right? You know, highly charismatic yeah. individuals. But this is one of the very grave moments in the run-up to January 6th. Well, I agree with that. And uh, I, I'm reading a lot of people saying, well, what we learned, though, is that, you know, the institutions held this wasn't really a close call. It was actually a very, very close call, because um, what we also learned yesterday was that in the White House call logs, they were already referring to Jeffrey Clark as the acting attorney general. And all it would have taken was for Donald Trump to say, OK, I'm, you know, I'm going with you. And that letter would have gone out. And the letter would have gone out, you know, suggesting that Georgia uh, name another slate of electors. And I think uh, our history would have been completely different. The only reason he backed off was because, I mean, again, I'll get your take on this. I mean, number one, he was, um, you know, faced with this mass resignation that would be embarrassing to him. And then you had uh, Steve Engel, who who pointed out uh, that that this would also step on his story. Um, that he you know thought he was going to get a big story out of the Georgia letter. In fact, the, the entire story would be about you know the Jeff Clark fiasco, and he understood uh, and he understood that. But um, this could have gone either way. Now, one thing that I wanted to remind you though was you know some people are saying that this is a smoking gun, uh, and and I think that I think that by the way the ground is littered with smoking guns here. But you know Trump again told repeatedly by his own appointees in the Justice Department, that there was no evidence of fraud in the election. They had gone through this. They had talked him through it. They'd walked him through it, given him this information. He didn't care. And at some point basically said, I just want you to say that it's corrupt and that I will take it from here. I'm going to play about a two minute uh, excerpt. And this is uh, Adam Kinzinger going back and forth, um, I believe, with Donahue about um, what happened. Let's play this and Get your take on the other side, whether or not you think this was a smoking gun. Let's now put up the notes uh, where you where you quote the president uh, as you're speaking to that. He said the president the president said, just say the election was corrupt and leave the rest to me and the Republican congressman. So, Mr. Donahue, that's a direct quote from President Trump, correct? That's an exact quote from the president. Yes. The next note shows that even the even that the president kept pressing, even though he had been told that there was no evidence of fraud, the president keeps saying that the department was, quote, obligated to tell people that this was an illegal, corrupt election. That's also an exact quote from the president, yes. Let me just uh, be clear. Did the department find any evidence to conclude that there was anything illegal or corrupt about the 2020 election? There were isolated instances of uh, fraud. None of them came close to calling into question the outcome of the election in any individual state. And how would you describe the uh, president's demeanor during that call? He was more agitated than he was on December 15th. Um, the, the president throughout all of these meetings and telephone conversations was adamant that he had won and that we were not doing our job. Um, but it did escalate over time until ultimately the. So what do you think? Former Attorney General Eric Holder tweeted out and said that is a smoking gun that, you know, that coupled with other testimony demonstrates both Trump's substantive involvement and corrupt intent his requisite state of mind. What do you think? Well, I tend to disagree with Eric Holder on this, not because I don't think it's incriminating. I do. I think it's quite damning statement. But I, looking at it as a Trump defense lawyer, if you put yourself mm -hmm. in the shoes right. of the Trump defense lawyer, uh, which is always a good exercise to go through, and you say, well, how would I defend it? And the answer is you would say, 
they said they couldn't say there was fraud. He knows there is fraud. And so he was merely asking them to say something at a higher level of altitude, right? That the election was corrupt uh, and just leave it at that. If you can't, if you can't give details, just say it at a high level of altitude and I'll take it from there. And, you know, again, it goes back to this question of did he sincerely believe that? I think the answer to that is almost certainly not. But that's the argument that I would make if I were his defense lawyer. Yeah, that would that would be a hard one to play. My colleague Will Selatan uh, points out, though, this is really part of uh, Trump's playbook, right? You know, it's, you know, arm twisting officials into announcing investigations of his political opponents. He doesn't care about the facts. All he cares about is the announcement, which he can then use to smear his opponent. And that's what the whole Ukraine thing was all about, right? Just trying to get Ukraine to say they were investigating Joe Biden and he would take it from there, right? I mean, this is this is his thing. He just wants someone to say there's a scandal and then leave the rest to me. We will go do it. Um, you know, it's the same play. Will writes again and again. Trump never cares about the facts. All he wants is a useful narrative. And for that, he just needs that statement, leave the rest to him. So this does right. seem to be quite a pattern. And all of that is exactly right. And I think it is very likely that a jury confronted with that would find that he had the requisite criminal intent. But I don't think it's a sure thing. I right. don't think it's a smoking gun. I think what you would really want if you're Merrick Garland here is you would want somebody to testify that in a candid moment, he said, look, I know we didn't really prevail, but this is the line we've got us hold to, right? That would be the smoking gun line. And, I, you know, I don't think they have that because I think no. what Trump does is he talks himself into this feverish belief in his own narrative. So let me ask you about this, though, because we've been focusing a lot on what did the president know? Was he sincere? Did he believe it? Did he have the requisite frame of mind? But aren't there charges in which that would they would not need to prove that? For example, if you are and again, I'm correct my language here, um, impeding a formal government proceeding, if you are trying to obstruct that. It doesn't matter whether you sincerely believe something. If you actually commit that act, that's a criminal act. Obstruction right? is a that's specific it. intent crime. Yeah. Okay, um, but what about the, the you? What, what is what is the statute about blocking a, an official proceeding? Uh, that's an obstruction statute, oh, okay. and that has a, a an intent element. But I I think the look I I don't think at the end of the day this is the issue that is going to prevent Trump's indictment. Hmm. And the reason is that I think if there is an indictment of Trump, it will be for conspiracy. And what the conspiracy statute requires is that you enter into an agreement to commit crime and that you take overt acts in pursuance of that. And I think the likelihood that Trump is going to be charged with a specific obstruction or a specific fraud is, is much less than the chances that there will be some conspiracy to defraud the United States by, for example, not counting the electoral votes properly, right? And there was an element of this conspiracy that involved putting pressure on Mike Pence. There was an element of it that involved uh, putting pressure on state officials to fraudulently submit new electors. There was a element that involved putting pressure on state officials to change their results. I think if you imagine an actual indictment of Donald Trump, that conspiracy is a much more likely vehicle than focusing on any specific act in uh, against a specific criminal charge. And then you're dealing with a very different mens rea requirement. Okay, so do you think that he will be charged either in Fulton County for his interference in the Georgia election count or 
by the Justice Department. I think he will be charged in Fulton County. Um, I do. I think um, I think his I'm not an expert on Georgia criminal law by any means, but I think the conduct that he and Mark Meadows, by the way, engaged in uh, in an overt effort to pressure state officials Mm. is, I mean, it's as frankly criminal as I could imagine it being. Uh, And the fact that there are so many calls and so many contacts to multiple officials, right? Everybody's focused on the one Raffensperger call, but remember, there's calls to Kemp. There's calls to that to that investigator working for Raffensperger, right? And so, I just think the conduct of the, in Georgia is just awful. And there's also a prosecutor who's convened a special grand jury to look at it under state law. And I, I do think that there. You know, if I were a betting person, I would say that a charge there is more likely than not. The federal picture is much less clear to me. Not that that picture is clear, but the federal picture is even less clear. I do think it has heated up over the last couple of days. And, you know, you had a search warrant executed against Jeffrey Clark's house yesterday, which he immediately went on Tucker Carlson to talk about. By the way, the timing was not coincidental. It could not have been that they did it the day of the hearing, right? I don't want to speculate yeah. on the relationship between... <laughs> let, let's just say the timing was notable. It was very notable. But you also had, in, that, in the same 24-hour period, two search warrants executed in Nevada and a number of subpoenas issued to fake electors. So you suddenly have a, a very visible Justice Department investigation taking overt investigative steps in matters that directly involve the president's conduct, right? Um, and so because the only reason Jeffrey Clark matters at all is that he is the president was considering overthrowing the leadership of the Justice Department and installing him there. And so I I would say, you know, on the federal investigation, it is big, like huge, big, diverse, and has indicted more than 800 people. Um, I don't know where it's going. I don't trust anybody who confidently claims to know where it's going. Uh, but people should not assume it is not going anywhere. Well, Neil Katyal made the point, the former acting solicitor general made the point yesterday that if they're going this aggressively after Jeffrey Clark, that means that clearly this is getting very, very close to Donald Trump for the reasons you just mentioned, because whatever Jeffrey Clark did, whatever conspiracy he was engaged in, he was engaged uh, in it with Donald Trump. Right. right. There aren't there. If you imagine that Jeffrey Clark no. is involved in a conspiracy, there aren't very many other conspirators. Right. Exactly. OK, so we don't have much time, but we did have a major decision on guns. I think the more people absorb what uh, the court did yesterday uh, about the New York law involving concealed carry, the more they realize that this may have implications far beyond simply concealed carry. Boy, we, you know, the the zone is is really flooded here. Um, the decision about New York's law making it difficult to get concealed carry permit, I was not at all surprised about the outcome of that case. I guess I'm slightly surprised by how sweeping the ruling was in changing all of the legal standards now that the state legislatures are allowed to use in passing any kind of gun control legislation. So we really move past an era in which these decisions are narrowly crafted. And it seems like, you know, the conservative majority seems to be very expansive in in the way that it is ruling on these cases. So give me your sense about how that the ruling has changed the status of the Second Amendment in litigation. Well, so uh, first of all, if you take the Clarence Thomas opinion at face value, it changes it a lot. It's a it's a broad opinion. It's a opinion that uh, really embraces the individual right not merely to keep but to bear arms. 
Um, and uh, the other side of the coin, however, is that it's not really clear that that, that broadest vision has five votes. Mm -hmm. And the reason is that it seems to depend on a concurring opinion signed by Justices Kavanaugh and the Chief Justice, who really kind of emphasize a, a more modest vision that allows for and that emphasizes some of uh, Justice Scalia's temporizing language in the original Heller decision that allows for uh, certain categories of restrictions. And so, you know, you can see the, the coming fissure among the conservative justices. Uh, and, you know, what's very clear off the bat is that a state like, for example, California or Massachusetts, uh, that basically doesn't allow uh, concealed carry is going to have to write its rewrite its laws, and the uh, the that there is basically a fundamental right, at least of the mentally healthy uh, person with no criminal record after a background check uh, to uh, walk around the street packing. Um, and there are states where that is not a presumptive right. I think today it is a presumptive right. What's less clear is how friendly the court is going to be to what Justice Kavanaugh calls, you know, objective criteria that may limit. For example, you know, have you been through a background check? Do you have a mental health history? Do you have, you know, any kind of spousal abuse history, et cetera? And I, I think it's very likely or very possible anyway that some of the justices sort of peel off once you frame the expansive right as a legislature can't limit it, you know, using those objective criteria. And, that, and that's going to be where the fight is. Yeah. Again, very much like the Dobbs decision, this creates all sorts of questions and probably is going to lead to a period of a lot of confusion about that as well. So Benjamin Wittes, we have had a lot of ground to cover today, and I really appreciate you coming on on a rather extraordinary news cycle uh, to discuss what's going on. So thanks a lot uh, for coming on the podcast. Yeah, just uh, my pleasure. Just want to warn you, anytime you invite me, uh, you're going to trigger uh, one of these 24 hours of shit show. I mean, just be warned the next <laughs> Quiet. time, Quiet. The next time you have any inclination to have me on the show. It's it's what so causes wait, these... wait till things get really quiet, really quiet and boring. Exactly, and in pay, August. I need some, something in August and we'll invite you on and lord knows what's going to happen we'll thank uh, you to everybody that has uh, listened to the podcast today keep in mind that we will be back on monday amanda carpenter will be sitting down with will salatin and i will be back on tuesday and we will do this all over again <laughs>